So Luke 9, uh, I think what we'll do, we're going to look at three passages with James. So uh, we're, we've kind of done a, an odd order. Uh, at least if you were to read a book about the 12 disciples, uh, I really like uh, 12 Ordinary Men by uh, MacArthur. I'll, I'll do some quoting from him. I'm reading another book. Probably wouldn't be as helpful to you because he, he traces more of the traditions and locations and the relics and stuff. Um, but there's, there's plenty of good books on the, on the 12 disciples. You can get books on the martyrdom of the 12 disciples if you want. Um, but they get kind of wonky. Um, but James is uh, one, of, one of the inner three, as, as we will see. Um, so, yes, we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. Um, uh, so here is James. Sometimes James is called James the Great, uh, not because he's greater than the other James, but because the other James in the Bible is called James the Less. We'll talk about why that is, probably because he's, he's short. Uh, so you can call my dad Moto the Less, I guess. That, I just now thought of that. That is kind of funny. I may do the same thing to my sister-in-law, Sheila the Less. And uh, something tells me she would not respond as well to that as my father would. Um, because my father may not get it. Um, but my sister-in-law would, and that would be the problem. But uh, uh, So sort of like the uh, major and minor prophets, the major prophets are called that because they're longer books. Right? <laughs> the uh, lack of creativity. Uh, the minor prophets are, for the most part, shorter, although Zechariah's got some length through it. Uh, so a couple of things about uh, James. Um, uh, do I have these up here? No. Uh, James is the older brother of John. Um, we get this from the fact that he's always named first. That's not a hard and tried rule, but it's a pretty standard rule. Um, even today, you more likely uh, name um, the, if you're going to give a list of, say, siblings, you'll probably start with the oldest. So it's Amanda, Craig, and Kyle. Um, uh, it, it's sort of like in sports. Don't you hate it if, if someone's trying to tell you the, the uh, Reds game? If, if, if the Reds win, it never happens. If the Reds win and they say it was 0-2. No, 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 no. Look, you tell whoever won, give their score first. Whoever lost, you give their score second. Right? That should be a law of these United States of America, in my opinion. Right, I would die believing that. Give the leftists long enough, I'm sure they'll, they'll force it because they have nothing else to do with their, their time. Um, but James is likely the older brother. We talked about John last week. So John is better known, uh, but James was, was, uh, was the older. He is always mentioned alongside John, except for in one context, as in Acts 12, when he's martyred. So we'll look at that. Um, and it's very likely that James and John come from a fairly prominent uh, family. Uh, so you remember that we meet Peter and Andrew, who are brothers. We'll do Andrew next week. James and John uh, are brothers. And we meet them essentially at the same time. They're all fishermen. And we talked about that James and John are probably uh, first cousins of Jesus. So Salome may be the sister of Mary. Um, but uh, what we really need to see is that the Zebedee's family is probably a more prominent family. Uh, one of the reasons we think this is because... Uh, James and John are, are often referred to as the sons of Zebedee. So that name brings with it some prominence that Peter's father, I don't think we know who Peter's father and mother were. Um, and there's a hint that Zebedee was a, an accomplished fisherman. So you get in Mark 1 uh, that Zebedee not only had his two sons working for him in the fishing business, he actually had hired servants working for him in the fishing business. Like, like, you can start a business. Look, if I start a business, I'm going to hire, like, one person, me, right? right? And that's how you're going to know it's, it's a small business. If I have 20 people working for me, I'm probably on to something. So, too, you can start a fishing business. You can do that right now if you want to. Uh, just don't tell the government. And, and, but if you have 20 people working for you, the government knows, um, uh, 
because you posted about it on Facebook. What were you thinking? But, um, but because you, you, you've got some prominence that, that you need to hire this out, right? It's the idea of growing a business. So Zebedee seems to have some, some employees. There is also evidence in John 18 um, that uh, John clearly, and I'm assuming the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved is John. I, that's a pretty standard belief, but there's some who question that. But let's just go with it. John uh, has access to the priests and so allows Peter to be an eyewitness to the trial. Right? And this is all developed in, in John. One of the reasons we think this is according to the early church tradition. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time tracking down the origin or anything, so I'm stealing this from MacArthur. Um, the tradition is that Zebedee was an actual Levite uh, and was a relative of one of the high priests. So uh, he would have had some prominence even in Galilee and in Jerusalem because as a Levite, he would have to serve as priest in, in Jerusalem, but he, he would have lived in, in Galilee. Um, so it's very possible that uh, there is some uh, prominence with the Zebedee family. Uh, one other thing worth mentioning is that on two of the list, uh, uh, listing all the disciples, James is mentioned second. So you see it here in Mark 3. He pointed to 12, Simon, to whom he named Peter, James, the son of Jeb, uh, Zebedee. And then Acts 1, um, you see Peter and John and, and James. Well, that's the wrong reference anyway. So uh, the idea here, and then two, two of them, um, James is mentioned second. But you would think it would be Peter, Andrew, James, John, instead of Peter, James, Andrew, John, or Peter, James, John, Andrew, right? And, and some surmise it's because behind Peter, James exercised some, some influence, uh, perhaps because he was older. Obviously, he has the older brother. He, he's older than some of them. And perhaps because of his personality. Um, I think MacArthur's probably right, uh, and I will emphasize these. James has a strong personality. Now, uh, there are all kinds of personalities. Chances are, when I say a strong personality, someone comes to mind. My sister's one of them, right? Like, I, I like to tell people all the time that of the five of us, particularly of the three kids, I am the most, by far, the introvert, right? And I'm not an introvert. I, I lean in that direction at times, um, but, but I'm, I'm an energetic go. My brother and sister, on the other, other hand, right? There's a reason why my brother's still single, right? You can't keep up with him. And uh, my sister had to marry uh, Goliath uh, in order to find someone who can, who can handle her, right? Um, you know, uh, my sister will tell you what she thinks, whether or not you care what she thinks, um, or if you have feelings, right? But uh, no doubt, you, you know someone has that strong, driven personality. Right? And I grew up in that, that sort of home, the opposite of my in-laws, Right? There's not a lot of strong personalities. There's a few in there. They married into it, but there's a few there, right? Um, and, uh, um, but that seems to be James. And so we'll see a few examples uh, where his, his answer to things isn't to be reasonable. It's to take action now, right? And remember, these are likely teenagers. Teenagers are figuring out life and they think in terms of solutions. This is one of the things we can really gain from teenagers. Because as you age, you, 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 you just kind of give up. The world's just going to fall apart and we might as well watch it. <laughs> you know? uh, right now, we're literally watching it burn, right? And we just pray for that. Uh, but a teenager says, here's a problem. We need to fix it. Young 20s, here's a problem. We need to fix it. We need to fix it now. It seems to be James's approach to things. So let's start um, with, with the, the inner three. Uh, since we've now looked at all three of them, this is why I've taken the order I've taken. 
uh, which is different from MacArthur and others. Um, there is an inner ring uh, in the Gospels. It's Peter, James, and John. And I just want to highlight uh, where we have the inner three get a special experience. Uh, the first is with Jairus. I remember Jairus' daughter dies. Uh, so, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So notice there, that, that's a good example. The prominence of James mentioned twice. Um, so so it, they want you to know this is John. You know James, this is his brother. All right. But we know John better, mostly because of, of, of the epistles um, and the gospel, of course. But uh, uh, from among the disciples, James likely has, has some influence. But they get to experience this, this resurrection. Mark 17, or Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and, and James and John, his brother. And again, there it is again. Uh, and led them up a high mountain. This is the transfiguration. Now, if we had time, we would, it would be helpful to actually look at Peter. In 1 Peter, I believe it is, Peter goes back to the transfiguration and said, we saw the glory of God in Christ. And that was a unique experience. Now, Peter does all the talking because he has that sort of personality. He talks and then later thinks about what he said rather than thinking and then deciding to talk. I bet you know people like that. My sister would be one, right? <laughs> uh, my father would be one. He, he gets half sentence, and then he realizes he hadn't really thought about how the sentence is supposed to end, right? So, so maybe that, that would describe him. Uh, my family's going to disown me. Mount of Olives is another one. Um, Mark 13, he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him private. So that's the inner four. Uh, Mount of Olives is where he gives the Olivet Discourse about the end times. Uh, so you got the 12 there, but there, there's an inner that, that are particularly involved. Um, and then there is the Garden of Gethsemane. He took with him Peter, James, and John, uh, began to be greatly distressed and, and troubled. Remember that he has the 12. Uh, they, they just left the upper room to share the Lord's Supper. They come to the garden, and then Jesus goes deeper into the garden with, with the inner three. Jesus goes deeper into the garden by himself, right? And then he comes back in, in, in stages, you know, why are you asleep? Won't you pray with me? Right. Uh, so these three, they likely hear Jesus crying out, um, not my will, but, but yours. Um, so I think MacArthur's helpful here. So as a member of the small inner circle, James was privileged to witness Jesus' power in the raising of the dead. He saw his glory when Jesus was transfigured. He saw Christ's sovereignty in the way the Lord unfolded the future to them on Mount of Olives. He saw the Savior's agony in the garden. I, I, I love those verbs. It's a good summary of what the inner three Experience. Well, let's start in Luke chapter 9. We'll have to move through these uh, pretty quickly because uh, I want to spend some time particularly on Matthew 20, but then also get to Acts 12. Luke 9, 51 to, to 55. Here we see um, James as a zealous person. Uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Uh, now, let us begin here that, um, just to review, I, I trust you already know this. The Jews and Samaritans did not get along. And we actually get a, one of the major reasons for this. Uh, and that is uh, where the two believe proper worship takes place on earth. The Jews believed it happens in Jerusalem at the temple. The Samaritans believed it happened on Mount Gerizim. Now, it had already been destroyed, but the Samaritans had built a temple at Mount Gerizim. 
the Greeks destroyed it, I believe. Uh, but it was there, and, and they believe, uh, to this day, there's a group of Samaritans that still worship there. They believe this place is holy, not Jerusalem. Um, and, uh, and so when Jesus comes to Samaritans and his face is set towards Jerusalem, well, that's a personal insult. Uh, you're bypassing the place where you are called to worship. So how can you be the Messiah and worship there and not here? But with that said, we should pause and consider uh, how much Jesus really did do for the Samaritans. I trust you're familiar that if you're traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, uh, you wouldn't cut straight through Samaria. That's the short route. You would rather go all the way around, um, and which required you crossing the Jordan River twice. Um, and that was because of the hatred. Uh, it was an ethnic ra- hatred between Jews north and south of Samaria and, and the Samaritans themselves. But Jesus showed a lot of kindness and did, was very gracious towards them. One, he healed a leper in Luke 17. Uh, the man fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Oh, and Luke says, by the way, you need to know he's a Samaritan. That's a very important detail there, isn't it? Because it really affects the story. Here is a Samaritan running to Jewish Savior. Very significant event. Uh, the woman at the well, right? It's, it's a classic story. She's Samaritan. We, we, we've talked about that before, but I want to highlight uh, near the end of the story, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Here, here's verse 40 significant. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So you see that here, Jesus was gracious enough to stay. He didn't just pass through, but he actually stayed in Samaria, a Jewish rabbi doing this. And they welcome him to, to do it. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the hero there is a Samaritan man. Of course, some, some uh, cultural, political uh, reasons for that. But still, you have a Jewish rabbi uh, in Judea uh, making a Samaritan the good guy. Um, not something to, to be expected. And also, he, wants, he, he expects the gospel to spread into Samaria. It's the power of the Holy Spirit will reach into Samaria. And what we have here is a reference to uh, Elijah, don't we? Um, Lord, do you want us to uh, tell fire to come down from heaven and, and consume them? Now, James clearly sees himself in a Elijah world, doesn't he? Now, you know the story of Elijah. We, we spent some time on the story of Elijah like two years ago or something. And you remember, there's, there's on two occasions, Elijah calls fire down from heaven. You need to remember, Elijah is in northern Israel, uh, called Israel, because Judah is in the south. Northern Israel is Samaria at this time. So Elijah is calling down fire from heaven in Samaria. And he's calling down fire from heaven against pre-Samaritans, right? They're all ethnic Jews. But, but it's these tribes that will essentially create, create Samaritans. Um, he does on two occasions. One is Mount Carmel. Remember that the fire comes down at the top of the mountain and consumes. The other is, remember whenever uh, the king sends messengers to Elijah? And as they approach, he just... Right? I mean, that... I'd like to do that next time someone comes knocking my door ask me for their vote, right? Just... Right? You know, next. <laughs> you know, and, and he does that on several occasions, right? And he calls on fire from heaven against those who, who, who are against him and his message. So here's James saying, um, shouldn't we do the same thing? And although Jesus appreciates the ministry of Elijah, of course, uh, Jesus understands we didn't come here to destroy, we came here to save. And you need to grasp this. It's good to be zealous, to have passion for truth and passion for, for the cause of Christ. But, but unless, as we saw last week with John, unless that is tempered with love and care and gentleness, 
um, it's, it's, not a, it's not godliness. Uh, the, the passion needs to be there. But so much, so much, so must the, the character. Let's look briefly in Matthew chapter 20. So let's turn back to Matthew 20. I want to spend a little more time on this passage. Um, we'll look at the ambition of James. But verses 20 through 24 we'll, we'll look at. But I want to provide some context. This is where James and John want to be one on the right, one on the left of Jesus. But the context is, is important here. So at the end of chapter 19, 19 verse 16 at the end of the chapter is the story of the rich young ruler. All right? um, so you know the story. You know, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, sell everything you have. And he leaves because he wants to hold on to his wealth rather than the kingdom of God. Now, notice how chapter 19 ends. Chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And this is the disciples say, but Jesus, who can be saved? We've left everything for you. Those who are first will be last, the last will be first. Well, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't end there. Remember, there's no chapter divisions in the Bible originally. Those are added later for, for readability. The next story is a parable. And notice how this parable ends. This is a parable of vineyard workers, my favorite parable. Verse 16, the last will be first, first last. It's the opposite of the end of chapter 19. Chapter 19 is uh, first, last, last, first. Chapter 20, verse 16, last, first, first, last. You think that's an accident? No, which means that you can't understand the rich young ruler without understanding the parable. can't understand the parable without the rich young ruler. Now, the parable, uh, for you Marxists here, you probably love it and you're a heretic, so I shouldn't expect you to read the Bible appropriately anyways, right? The parable is guys work for 12 hours, 6 hours, 3 hours, 2 hours, and 1 hour, and they all get paid the same, right? Workers of the world unite, right? And, who, and of course, the guys who, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a joke there, Andy. I'm just, this is me withholding my, my personality. Um, but... Uh, uh, the guys who work with this problem with Marxism, the guys who work 12 hours say, it's not fair. Next time, we're just going to work for one hour. That's the problem with socialism, right? You take out the incentive of actually to, to create wealth. And so you don't create wealth, you just steal wealth, and eventually you run out of wealth, right? What was it Margaret Thatcher said about socialism? Uh, it, it, uh, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money to spend. Um, and, and that is exactly true. Um, and so this parable isn't about economics. Once you understand it's not about economics, it's a fantastic parable. It's about grace. Whether you entered early or whether you entered late, you get the same amount. It's, 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 it's a beautiful parable. Right? But what's the point? In the story, those who work 12 hours, so they worked first, are paid last. Those who come last, you know, at, at the 11th hour, it's literally where, where we get that, that term, they get paid first. So when you see that they all get paid the same... Then you can understand the rich young ruler. The last will be first, the first will be last. Or the first will be last, the last will be first. But it doesn't end there. If you keep reading in Matthew 20, uh, verse 17, here's what Jesus does. He predicts his death. Right? We gotta go to Jerusalem. There I'm gonna be crucified and risen the third day. And the disciples are busy looking at their phones, and so they don't hear what Jesus says. Right? Uh, not that young men would ever do that today. Uh, now, why is that so important? Jesus just articulated. Grace goes for the rich young ruler, but grace is something that we all need equally. 
Now we are given the means of grace, something that the rich young ruler couldn't grasp. The means of grace is the cross. So so grace from the cross is equal at at the foot of the cross. Whether you're rich, whether you're young, whether you're a ruler, or you're poor, elderly, and and a pauper, I guess it would be, right? Um, uh, you, the, the grace is equal to you. And, and all of them must surrender uh, what it is that, that keeps us from, from, from doing that. Well, then we get to uh, 17 and 19 is the prediction. Then we get to verse 20, which is the story about James. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Is it her? What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right, one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. Of course they can. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit on my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those of whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but the servant to give his life's friends for many. See how it's all tying together? What is the lesson that these disciples must learn? Though poor, they're just as guilty as the rich young ruler. They want the same thing. Prominence, power, influence, and salvation as a bonus. And what's Jesus' message to, to not just the brothers, but everyone? Notice the disciples become indignant. They got to ask first. They got dibs on, um, on shotgun in heaven, right? Uh, Jesus' answer is, you guys got to learn. You think you're first because you got here at 6 in the morning and worked 12 hours. You need to know that you are called to serve, even those who get here at the 11th hour. It's the same problem the rich young ruler had. Are you willing to give up prominence? Are you willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ? So they too had to learn the last had to be first, the first had to be last. Well, let us just quickly um, look at this. Uh, One of the problems with this passage is there may be a contradiction here. And it may come up every once in a while, so it's worth mentioning. Notice verse 20. Who is it that makes the request to Jesus? It's mama, ain't it? It's mama, right? Okay, so mama asked Jesus, Hey, uh, nephew, you and I need to talk. And if you don't agree with me, I'm going to tell your mother, right? They have this talk over Thanksgiving dinner. But what do we do with this? In Mark 10, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and asked, Teacher, we want one on the right, one on the left. Which was it? Was it the boys or was it the mama who made this request? This is one of those contradictions that makes me laugh. For example, a lot of people will say, um, was it two angels that the women saw at the resurrection or one? Was it two blind men that Jesus healed or was it one? Now, let me do some math for you. If there are two people, could you also say there were also one person at least involved? You get it, right? So in Mark, he's going to emphasize um, Barnabas, blind Barnabas. Um, In Matthew, he's going to say there's two blind men. Now, for whatever reason, Mark wants you to know of Barnabas, probably because he was an eyewitness in an interview. The point is, is that if there are two blind men, is it still accurate to say there was a blind man? Obviously, right? So if I were to say there are, let's say, 20 people, I don't have a gallery. But then I said, oh, one person was there, 
and their name was Bob. Let's say there's a person named Bob here. That'd still be true. I don't, I, that contradiction I just don't get. Um, this is another one. Hey, mom's here. Have you ever made a request either directly or indirectly for your kids? Yes, yes. Maybe the boys came up to mom and said, I just, I think it's obvious. We're first cousins. We should have prominence. And so mom intervenes. Jesus, we need to talk. You know, I know I used to change your diapers. You remember that, right? I had to listen to your mother talk about these wise men, and I just got tired of it, right? Or it's the other way around. Mama says, boys, you're not ever going to accomplish anything. You just don't go ahead and tell Jesus right now. Which is it? I don't know. But it makes complete sense to me to say that the mother made a request, and by that she's representing James and John, or James and John make the request and they're representing their mother. Right? I don't know. Um, it's sort of like some of you all, um, I'll say me, you can say, my wife dressed me, and I dressed myself. Both are true at the same time, Right? I can't leave the house without her approval, right? That's, I'm teasing, of course. She stopped trying several years ago because it was vanity of vanity, she, she once said. Um, however, with, with, this, with this drive of ambition, didn't stop here with the 12 disciples. So in Luke 22, we see this. Now, the context here is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, I'm going to die and give my life as a ransom for many, right? And what are the boys talking about? Who can now arm wrestle Jesus? Who's the greatest? This is their conversation they're having. It's the same conversation. Do boys do this? Do men do this? Of course. I tell you what, you got two guys. They've, they've been in a company for the same amount of years. One of them gets the promotion, the other doesn't. What's that one that didn't get the promotion going to talk about? What's the boss thinking? He knows I'm better at this than, than the other guy. I bet he only did that because of politics. He knows I won't put up with none of it. What did he just do? I'm the greatest than this guy. That's, oh, the male ego, the greatest and worst thing about men. Um, now, you remember what does Jesus do in light of this? John 13. He takes the form of a slave, literally, oriental slave, and he washes their feet. He doesn't teach. He just gets on his knees and starts washing feet. You guys are so great, you didn't even notice our feet were dirty. And you wouldn't do anything about it. I'm the greatest among you, by far. And here I am stooping low for your benefit. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, MacArthur, I like what he does here. Uh, James wanted a crown of glory. Jesus gave him a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted a place of promise. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. He wanted to rule. Jesus gave him a sword. Not to wield, but, to, but the instrument of his ex own execution. Fourteen years after this, James would become the first of the twelve to be killed of his faith. And it's good to see that James was very zealous and very ambitious, and yet, by the end of it, as the resurrection, he was a different man. It doesn't mean that he gave up his passion. It doesn't mean he didn't give up ambition, but it was a sanctified passion. It was a sanctified ambition. And that's the key we need to see with James. So with that, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts 12. Here we see his, his execution. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
When he has seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It's amazing um, what little is actually said of James' martyrdom, isn't it? Uh, hardly anything is, is mentioned there. A couple of things to notice here. This is the only place in the New Testament where James appears alone. He is always associated with his younger brother. It's always James and John. Uh, but here, he appears alone, and it is to die. No one else is with him when he is executed. Um, also, James is the only martyr uh, of the apostles that is recorded in the Bible. Um, we have strong hints. Uh, so we're in Second Timothy and devotions. So in a day or two, we'll, we'll see Paul anticipating his death. Peter does it in, in 2 Peter as well. Uh, but James is the only one that's actually mentioned. We'll see uh, here in a minute that John references kind of his, his longevity and possible death in, in his gospel. We talked about that last week. Uh, but Herod Agrippa had him beheaded. Uh, remember that Herod Agrippa is the uh, nephew of the Herod who participated in Jesus' crucifixion. That Herod wanted Jesus to perform tricks like a magician. Um, and this is his nephew, so the apple don't fall far from the tree. And what we need to see here is that in the death of James, it's very early, um, before even the Jerusalem Council, um, James is executed. Um, but what we need to see is that, remember what we just read. Jesus says, can you drink of the cup of suffering I'm about to drink? You will drink it. Here he does it, the cup of suffering. And thus, James proves himself worthy of an eternal kingdom. Whether who's at the right or left is, matters very little. He proved himself worthy. And um, his passion for Jesus led to his death. His ambition for Christ led to his death. All to the glory of God. There's one other story worth mentioning here. It's not in the Bible, so it may or may not uh, be worth Highlighting, but it is from a fairly reliable source. The uh, is the early church historian named Eusebius. We've talked about him some before. Eusebius uh, wrote a book in the fourth century called Church History. Uh, it's he saw Emperor Constantine as the fulfillment of all things. Um, he was sorely wrong about that, but he preserved and recorded a lot that happened early on in the church, where we get a lot of our traditions. He, had, he has a brief comment about the execution of James. I'm going to read it to you. Um, yeah. And concerning this James, uh, Clement, right? we, we've talked about Clement, uh, Clement of Rome. Uh, like First Clement is an influential book. So Clement writes this. So Clement relates a story which is worthy of mention, telling it as he received it from those who had lived before him. He said that the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he was himself also a Christian. They were both, therefore, led away together, and all the way he begged James to forgive him. And he, after considering a little, said, Peace be with you, and kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. And then, as the divine scripture says, Herod, upon the death of James, seeing that the deed pleased the Jews, attacked Peter also and committed him to prison, and would have slain him if he had not, by the divine appearance of an angel, who came to him by night, been wonderfully released from the bonds, and thus liberated to the service of the gospel. Such was the providence of God in respect to Peter. Now, is that story true? Uh, the part about James and, and, the, and the guy who got beheaded with him? I don't know. It's not in the New Testament. So it's not inspired by God. But it is a fascinating story. And by the way, that is not unique from the martyr stories we get. 
we have several stories of Christians uh, persevering through suffering and suffering greatly that others were moved and embraced Christ and suffered with them there on the spot. So this would not be unique in the history of the church. It could have been the genesis of that. It's similar to what we have with the thief on the cross. Moved by Christ's example on the cross, becomes a Christian, and there dies right next, next to him. Um, so, again, don't know if it's true or not, but it is fascinating. See, I want to mention one other thing for my own entertainment. You may not like this, but I think it's hilarious. Uh, let's talk about where are they now? Now, what you should say is, I know exactly where they are now, dead. Now, you can visit, I don't know if Danny and Susie did, where uh, the traditional site where James was executed, there's a church there now. Um, but you can go there, do with that whatever you want. Um, some of those have rather early traditions attached to them, not all of them, but, but if that's something you want to do, you, you can. The reason I bring this up is, what if I told you, we're going to look at James and John, what if I told you, um, They've been busy since they died. All right, let's start with John, your boy, Apostle John. What if I told you he is still alive? It's like a 30 for 30 documentary, isn't it? What if I told you the Apostle John didn't actually die? Well, we saw last week, John chapter 22, when Jesus tells Peter, if it is my will that he live until I return, what is that to you, right? Well, there's a little group uh, in America, known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ever heard of them? I am just fascinated by the Mormons. I will confess to you, we all have that one thing we just can't get enough of. For me, it's the Mormons. I, I, just, I just love them so much. I, if I ever, ever become a missionary, I want to be in Utah. I do. I'm I, I would just eat that up. They, they well... And be nice. So one of the things about, we've talked about this before, one of the things that Mormons believe is that the Apostle John never died. They take John 22, they don't read it, but they take John 22, what else do you expect from, from, from heresy? Let me give you a few other examples of this. This is Doctrines of Covenants. It says, Revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Oliver uh, Cowdery. He was uh, w- one of the early uh, um, witnesses of, um, of the Book of Mormon uh, translation. At Harmony, Pennsylvania, April 1829, when they inquired through the Urim and Thunum, don't worry about that, it's in the Old Testament, as to whether John, the beloved disciple, tarried in the flesh or had died. Right? That's the introduction to it. They're going to tell you, yep, John is alive. Let me give you some more evidence. This is a witness of the Book of Mormon. They make a big deal out of this. There are, I think, seven initial witnesses. Um, there's a story behind all that. We just, we've talked about it before. David Whitner said the three Nephites, if you don't know what that is, doesn't matter, um, are at work among the lost tribes and elsewhere. Mormons believe that uh, the lost tribes of Israel are among, is one of the lost tribes of Israel are the Native Americans. Uh, that is deep within their text. By the way, that was a common belief in the in mid-19th century where Mormonism comes out of. Uh, think about it. What you see are uh, Native people uh, who are dark-skinned, not from Europe, and you think, oh, they look, they look Semitic. They must be Semitic. But then, a few years later, we discover something called DNA. And you can test, are Native Americans Semitic? No. No. Um, I had a student once try to get his way around that. And, of course, whenever you say, look, DNA-wise, a boy's a boy, a girl's a girl, and they still don't believe it, it's not surprising you can say, look, a Semitic, Semitic, a Native American, a Native American, and they still don't believe it. What is she going to do, right? Science. Um, uh, so that, that's, that's what that first sentence means. John the Revelator is at work, is at work. 
Not through the Holy Spirit inspiring his work, but he is alive and well. And I believe the time will come suddenly before we are prepared for it, right? John's going to show up. Uh, I think I got one more here. Um, And I could give you several more, but you have a life to live. Uh, This is President John Taylor, uh, early president. Um, John, the revelator, was permitted to live upon the earth until the Savior should come. Savior ain't come yet. Um, And the Book of Mormon gives an account of three Nephites who lived on this American continent who asked for the same privilege, and it was granted to them. So they never died, I guess. Uh, Now, why does this matter? Because I think it's funny. Um, But um, one of the things, I always bring this up with Mormons. I always like to, so they don't come by the house anymore. They've been driving by our house on bikes so much. They don't come by the house anymore. I've ruined that. But I'll always let them give their spiel. Then I'll say, okay, can you just answer one question for me? Do you really believe the Apostle John is still alive and well and never died? Oh, that's when their eyes get big and they realize you're on to them. Right? Because every movement has that weird thing, you know? And we have weird things and we just take it for granted. But Mormonism, this is one of them. Got like a dozen of them. This is one of this is my favorite, right? But do think about the implications. There are 12 apostles. There's always 12 apostles. They believe in apostolic succession. Go to Utah. 12 apostles are there. The president is the head of the 12 apostles. Here's the problem. They believe, according to their inspired writings, Doctrine of the Covenants and Book of Mormon, that one of the original apostles is still alive. That means John at any time could show up in Salt Lake City and say, hey, guys, you've got one too many apostles on the board of directors. One of y'all don't belong because I'm the guy. Then there is the argument from the, from the Mormon church that says, um, look, after Nicaea, which was a council, um, and they, they have bad arguments about that, the church ceased being the church of Jesus. It became a heresy. And it wasn't until Joseph Smith, you have the renewal of the true church. Here's the problem. For 1,700 years, uh, roughly, be, I guess it'd be like 1,500 years, um, John the Apostle was supposedly roaming the earth and apparently didn't think it important to correct all the things that the church was getting wrong during that time. He could have done that with the rise of the Catholic Church in medieval age, couldn't he? That would have saved us a lot of trouble and dead bodies. Well, that, was that too harsh? Oh, well. Um, so, so that's John the Apostle. Uh, I've shown the goofy video, or the... Uh, um, Donald and Donald, Donald. yeah, yeah, yeah. They they do a whole thing on this. That's when I first came across it was through them. Man, so good. All right, Apostle James, real quick, then we're done. According to the LDS, James was resurrected along with Peter and John, and visited Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1829. Uh, so so we just read part of that from Doctrine of Covenants. There they restored the. Uh, priesthood authority with apostolic succession on the earth. And this is, I believe, their Melchizedek uh, priesthood. They have like two different priesthoods. I get lost in it. Uh, I believe this is the Melchizedek priesthood. So the original priesthood. I guess Aaron got it all wrong. I don't know. Um, But they believe that God raised Peter and James and John for this moment. Hey, Hey, Joseph, sorry. We forgot to write this down in the Bible. This is how you do it. And then I guess they went back home. So to answer the question, where are they now? There you go. John is still around. I don't know how he's going to vote in this November election, but I sure would like to know. Um, James, on the other hand, he had one more job to do. He had to wait until the mid-19th century to do it. And then I guess he's hanging out with Jesus now. Did you feel better? Good. Good. All right. Anything else you guys can add? 
I've insulted the Mormons in the Catholic Church, so I've done, I've done enough for one day. So, all right. How about we stand up and pray, since Andy still don't want us to uh, touch.